You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 208. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. One of the most interesting discussions that we've had on the show is about the concept of the fourth turning, the upheavals in society that occur every lifetime or so. And the discussion leads to fascinating areas where history, technology, economics, and social forces all intersect. For example, at the end of every fourth turning event in American history, we see something of a refounding of our system of money, a remaking of our monetary system from throwing out the continental dollars after the Revolutionary War to the Bretton Woods Agreement after World War II. Well, my next guest wrote a few great articles on this and a tweet storm, which I highly recommend. Uh, He is, and I think it's fair to say, an avid Bitcoiner being head of user acquisition at Swan Bitcoin and uh, the host of many Bitcoin meetups. He is, uh, and uh, he calls Bitcoin fourth turning money. We're about to find out why that is. Brandon Quidham, you've reached the local maximum. Welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Max. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, so am I. Uh, I feel like I've only talked about the fourth turning on the podcast, well, three times really, but the first time I didn't really know what it was that much. But um, I, I, I feel like I can't get enough of it. I'm just thinking about it all the time. And so uh, just to start, like, some of my listeners will be aware of what the fourth turning is, but let's kind of kick this off with like a, a quick refresher here. So what is a turning in general, in generational theory by Strauss and Howe? Maybe we even have to say who those people are. And like, what's peculiar about the fourth turning that we're in right now? Yeah, absolutely. And if you'll allow me to indulge for one second, uh, I was thinking about this podcast yesterday, listened to a few previous episodes and local maximum, right? You you use that from a design or a machine learning term and it's quite useful. Um, However, it also fits into an analogy I really like with understanding Bitcoin and the local maximum you could compare to alpine mountaineering uh, as a false peak. Um, It's not a perfect, yeah, it's not a perfect analogy, but it works really nice with Bitcoin, which is that a lot of people think that they spend 10 hours, five hours, whatever, learning about Bitcoin, and they think that they understand it at a deep level and so that they can totally make generalizations about the system and they can sort of move on with an understanding. But they really only had a superficial grasp. And there's all these intellectual traps along the way. For example, if you have a long history in mainstream economics, that's actually going to hurt you when you're trying to grasp what Bitcoin is. Really? Right. So there's all these little traps. And so I, I, I guess I just want to tie it back to the name of your show where people reach these intellectual false peaks on their journey to understand Bitcoin. But the reality is, um, you know, as soon as you think you have Bitcoin figured out, uh, if you keep going another step further, you realize that you know very little and it's time to keep learning. So just had to yeah. toss that in there quick. No, that's great. That's that's why it's called the local maximum. It's true for a lot of things. And I think it's probably uh, uh, like an uh, uh, order of magnitude more true for something like Bitcoin, where it's it's like, okay, you know, it's often first introduced to someone on the technical level. Uh, it was first introduced to me on the technical level, but, you know, it's hard to understand why it's important, you know, back in like 
20, you know, 2012 or 2013, if you're first hearing about this when, when it's early days, for example. Yeah, hugely important point, which is also why tech people often dismiss Bitcoin, because from a technology standpoint, it's inefficient. It's not actually very elegant. The code's not that great. It appears that there's all these efficiency gains we can make. But again, that, that's shooting yourself in the foot. That's, you know, you're, you're missing the forest for the trees, as they say. Um, and it's really about the implications. Like, what does Bitcoin mean as a sociopolitical tool? or technology or institution, however you want to look at it, the implications of that are actually very, very enormous. And I'm sure we'll get into that. Uh, but okay, we should probably touch yeah. on the fourth turning. No, yeah. Um, well, I have one more thing to add, though, because I'm remembering please. kind of the early chains of people talking about Bitcoin, people are talking about, like, what's a, a blockchain and all that. And like, I, I, I've had so many frustrating um, things that I overheard at the uh, at the lunch table, working in, in software for many years. And I remember back in the day, like people would crap on this stuff all the time, but they couldn't shut up about it, which is sort of why I knew it was, uh, it was a big deal. Uh, particularly, I think like back, like, I don't know, 2013, 2014, um, you know, you'd hear a lot of tech software people sort of, sort of talking in that way. Um, it's just, uh, it's just very, I could talk for hours on this, but let's, let's get into fourth turning or, or turning in general. Okay, awesome. So just super high level. It's a book written in the late 90s by a historian and a demographer. They team up and they write. Uh, they wrote several books together. Their famous book prior was called Generations. And a lot of presidents actually reference that book as saying it was one of the most important books they read. It put things into context. And that's more of like a thick textbook, the full thesis. Whereas the fourth turning, they essentially isolated the most exciting part of their cycle. And their theory is looking at demographics and how do those demographics create cycles over time. And I don't want to go too deep into the overview because you should really just listen to your, your episode from last summer. It does a really good right. job of the overview. Um, but a couple points to add to your previous work. Um, one thing that stuck with me is that history creates generations and generations create history. Right. So what do I mean by that? Um, okay, history creates generations. That means that the context upon which we're all born, let's say we're millennials, we're all born in the same substrate, the same social political environment. And so that is the history. And that history imprints us as individuals, right? Did you grow up during a war? or Did you grow up during a peacetime? That would have a very different effect on young people. Okay, so right. the context forges the individual, then that individual grows up and then they, they become an adult and then they start pushing back upon the world, right? And they all have similar upbringing. So they also respond to the world in somewhat predictable ways. Obviously they're individual outliers all over the place in this thesis. A lot of people will fight back on that point, but the reality is the group is predictable and it, it, these patterns appear to show up. And so, in my opinion, there's some credence here, right? It's not the only tool in the toolbox, toolbox, but if you're a student of history and you want to look at big macro trends, I find this one to be useful, right? And so back to the thesis, um, the, the, the sexy point here is that every 80 to 90 years or so, we have this major conflict period called the fourth turning or a crisis. And the way I describe that is it's essentially people look around and they realize that all the institutions are failing. Things like healthcare, um, politics, it's economics, right? All the exterior world is just falling apart. And it's, it's also the realization that we want strong institutions, 
right? So it's like this species impulse that the world's crumbling and we need to replace it with something. So what happens? We realize that we need to sacrifice. We need to collectivize. We need to work together for the greater good. Okay. And you could also say this is humans being lazy, right? Where there was probably a 40 year slow decline leading to this crisis moment, but nobody would do anything with it until the very end. Until right? it so it's very enough. human nature. Yeah, exactly. Until it gets bad enough. And Another couple points here to add to your thesis. It's really about the, the constellation of these generations, right? So the authors give an archetypal uh, name to each generation, a hero, nomad, artist, etc. And depending on which age those different archetypes are at determines the mood. And that's the key point here. People will say, oh, well, technology influences the world. True. But what also influences the world is how people respond to that technology. What, what demands for technology emerge out of the species at that point in time, right? So there's a symbiotic relationship between external forces and internal forces, um, and those sort of play off each other. And the mood right now is, is like the greatest need in the world is to fix the outer world. And it's urgent. People care about it a lot. And the other, other important points of this theory is it's really about like, classical forces swinging on a pendulum and where do those pendulums align, right? So it, it could be around things like, do we have strong parenting or weak parenting? Is the individual strong or is the collective strong, right? You can kind of see those forces oscillating over time. And I think it's actually really healthy that we have these cycles. Let's assume that this theory is relatively accurate. Um, it's healthy because yeah. you don't want to have too much of any one of these different um Another things, one I right? think is like rationalism and spirituality also is kind of a part of it. Totally. If it's too rational, right, that's that's kind of what the first turning is. You just finished a big conflict, you rebuild, nobody wants to fight, everybody's just really practical. And if, if you grow up as a child, now I'm talking about the baby boomers, so post-World War II, baby boomers are born, and they grow up in this sterile um, relative period of of equality, but also everything's boring. The music sucks. Like Elvis is, is too sexy, which is hilarious by today's standard. The young people, they grow up and what happens? Naturally, they rebel against the world that they were born into. They rebel against their parents and they create the civil rights movement, the psychedelic 60s, all this sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's a total backlash from that repressed first turning culture. So one thing I was thinking about, like I've, I've heard written like, oh, or, or people say like, oh, during the fourth turning, we replace all our institutions. But it's not true that we replace all our institutions. Like, you know, if you look at history and you look at what they what is called fourth turnings in history, like some institutions like the U.S. government pass right through and maybe they're a little bit changed. Talk about monetary history, like, you know, Federal Reserve was created in a, what would that be, a third turning or a second turning somewhere before that goes right through the fourth turning. So you almost have to predict um, which institutions are going to be replaced and which are going to be, uh, uh, which are going to, I don't know, hodl, hodl, not hodl, I don't want to use the word hodl, but kind of hobble along. <laughs> um, uh, so how do you think about that? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Like, you know, how, how far does the model go and, and how precise is it? And what can we look forward to the future, right? There's a few questions embedded in there. And I think the best way to use this model is to, is to think about this at the highest level that, you're, that you can, right? These are just like 
forces that move populations. And I wouldn't get caught up on dates or timing or actual specific things. Yeah. But when I look forward, what I see is the two largest problems in society right now. One comes right out of the fourth turning. This is classic, which is that the demand for order is high. So we want strong institutions. But today, the supply of order is extremely low. So that giant delta between supply and demand of order is what creates all this tension and animosity and chaos and change. And okay, so that's one. We want strong institutions. Point two is that our financial system is at the end of a long-term credit cycle. Um, so if this is a new phrase for you, I would, I would look up a, a YouTube video by Ray Dalio where he explains these long-term credit cycles. But it essentially, uh, without getting into the weeds here, it's essentially just every, let's say, 80 to 100 years, it's not perfect. Um, the financial system, uh, a fiat financial system, sort of comes to the end of its road, and we sort of have to start over. And we can look at a few of these throughout history. Also, in, in the Bible, for example, there was these debt jubilees. So anytime a new ruler would take over, they would just wipe the debt. Um, there's all these historical examples. So what it tells me is that debt-based monies, ultimately, they end up being unsustainable, right? It might work in the short term, but eventually you blow this thing up and start over. And so right now we're at that point in our financial system. And that could be, did that cause a fourth turning? Did a fourth turning uh, social context cause that? I don't know, but they're overlapped right now. And I'm passionate about Bitcoin as a solution to this problem. I don't know if you want to get into it now, but I would love to tie this this thread. Yeah, no, uh, eventually, yeah. No, but I, I just want to add, I was thinking about this in terms of uh, previous, you know, previous first turnings or fourth turnings. When, like, okay, you think that hard money is maybe should be uh, reimposed uh, at the end of a fourth turning. I can think of some examples, you know, uh, Revolutionary War, we had a uh, 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 gold and silver standard reimposed by the U.S. government after the Revolutionary War. Gold standard comes in after the Civil War. I don't know exactly what time. After the World War II, I guess we have Bretton Woods, which is kind of a global gold standard. But all of those... I mean, I, I, I'm probably oversimplifying and don't understand those quite as well, but I feel like we've never seen anything like this where we've had this fiat currency for so long. I mean, like, look at the fourth turning of the Civil War. Like, okay, you had like a very temporary, you know, uh, expansionary policy to fight the war and then it was over. Uh, that's nothing like what we see today. Yeah, it's a really good point. And I think a lot of people have recency bias, right? It always plagues history where we look to the recent past and we say, oh, well, money is this um, imaginary thing made up by government. So that's what money must have always been. But if we look through the long arc of history, money is usually not fiat money. It's usually not a debt based money. However, there are periods in time like before the fall of Rome um, where there is some major debasement going on from their government. They essentially expanded too fast and they started uh, debasing the currency to pay for their military to maintain this expansion. But as soon as their, their revenue growth to simplify things uh, slowed down, they couldn't sustain the model. Now, did that cause the fall of Rome or was it just correlated? I don't exactly know, but there does seem to be correlations between uh, a monetary system that's at the end of its wits and social upheaval, right? And if we just look at today and you look around, just to hammer home this point about trust, 
um, and, and trying to figure out which institutions we're going to replace, I would look at the institutions that people uh, trust the least today, right? Because that would be the most motivation to change. Um, one, for example, is a strong federal government. Okay, do I, do I mean we're going to get rid of the U.S.? No, but could I see the federal government sort of being put in its place uh, or reduced over this next 50 years? I think the answer is yes. And one stat here, this is from about four years ago, I think it was 2018, um, 28% of Americans support peaceful secession. So yes. they're comfortable with their state leaving, leaving the federal government. That's an astronomical percentage, and I guarantee you it's grown since this COVID hysteria. And so if we go back to the Revolutionary War for comparison, it was around 30% of people who actually wanted to leave English rule, right? And so that's that's dangerously close to uh, one of the bigger upheavals in history. Another one, okay, the mass media. Most people know the media is sort of a, a conglomerate that may or may not have our best interest in mind. Uh, I would say clearly doesn't. And you see things like Joe Rogan having more reach than CNN and Fox News combined, right? So there's this starting to see this pushback. The Federal Reserve, I think people are starting to wake up that as inflation peaks its head out in the US, people say, well, why is that happening? Who's to blame? And then you have Bitcoin as a potential solution. Um, homeschooling. It's, it's having its major resurgence now as people realize industrial education system might not be for them. Wage earning, you can't get ahead doing that. So you see the rise of the creative economy. Okay, nine to fives, we're seeing remote work, right? So there's all this response to these archaic institutions. And again, I think it's totally rational. Most of our institutions we built after World War II ended when all the pieces on the board were rearranged and we essentially created a new order in the world. Right. You mentioned Bretton Woods. Um, that could only happen after the U.S. was relatively strong compared to other superpowers post-World War II. We had all the gold. So we essentially got to make the rules. And that also included a period when we created the International Monetary Fund. We created FDIC. We created uh, Social Security. Right. All kinds of unprecedented yeah. things were built there. It's and I think imagine, the same is happening now. <laughs> well, it's hard to imagine there was once a day when those were considered new and exciting. Right. Yes. Income tax was made in the 1900s. Right. Before that, yeah. a federal income tax was like a very hard no by our founding fathers. And I think it was Milton Friedman who said there's nothing more permanent than a temporary government program. And I think that's an important lesson here. As we give up our freedoms for some vague sense of security with regard to COVID hysteria or some vague sense of like economic equality, right? We give up so much. And then in the name of this temporary save, and it ends up being permanent and we forget and we slowly cede power to the state. And I actually think that Bitcoin is a strong institution that satisfied some of the demands of society today. Because um, if you think about Bitcoin, it is a central bank, right? It issues its own currency. Um, it's also a it's kind of an automated government in the sense that there is a, a judicial arm, a legislative arm, an executive arm, right? It, it, it uh, manufactures its own rules, it says, here are the rules of the game. And if you break the rules, you get punished by the judge, right? So it's sort of like property rights in a box. It's self-sovereignty in a box. Um, it's all these different things. And it, the timing I, I wanna, is right. Yeah. I, I want to dig down on that. Like, how do you, how do you figure like, who's the, who's the legislature for, for Bitcoin? Like explain that whole, like 
how, how that whole analogy works. Totally. So, um, okay, legislators make laws. So in a Bitcoin system, a law would be like protocol rules. And who writes the protocol rules? Software developers. So in this case, the software developers write new code. And what's interesting about that is they can't just write code and push merge code and it runs. Instead, the users have to then accept that code. So there's kind of checks and balances in the system. So the users who run full nodes... Yeah. Oh, I was just saying, if we want to make an analogy, that's like a bill, not a law. It's like a yes, uh, exactly law. Yeah. Yes. Great, great uh, summary there. And okay, the the judge or the judicial branch would sort of be like the the interpreter of the rules. That's actually kind of like what the nodes do. Um, if you propose, uh, if if you try to run some code that's out of consensus, the nodes will just shun you. You sort of get punished. Um, and so anyways, it, it, it's like that, right? It is this institution, but it's not run by central authorities. And I think that's the important point here as we start to use information technology, like the internet decentralizes information, Bitcoin decentralizes money. And I, I think humanity is ready for that type of change. Now, if Bitcoin would have come out in the 70s where economic equality was relatively high, um, generally people are aligned, all relative good things, I don't think Bitcoin would be as potent. But it came out um, at, at the dawn of the fourth turning, which was around the, the financial crisis in 07 and 08, and the, the ramping up period. And it's now becoming mainstream during the COVID stuff. Again, we're printing all this money economics are going crazy, politics are going crazy. And so I, I just think timing's right there. Right, right. Yeah, that, that is really interesting. Uh, I, I feel like um, one of the things you mentioned is like, it's 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 not just like the, the, the turnings don't necessarily dictate what technology comes out, but it's more like how we use it. And um, it, it, it seems like, I mean, it, it is kind of an interesting thought experiment if Bitcoin were to come out in the 70s. What would have happened? I mean, maybe, uh, you know, maybe the uh, maybe we would have seen more um, uh, more constraint from from government money printers over the last 50 years. I don't know. Or maybe people just wouldn't have been as interested in it. Um, but it, it does seem like it, it came at just the right time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a good analogy would actually be in the 90s um, rather than the 70s, because yeah. the 70s is the fourth turning. There's actually some upheaval there, but culturally, yeah. right? You mean, you it's mean internal. The, right. So the second second turning. Sorry, second turning. Yeah. Internal Which, strife. That's the turning that I never really, I, I, I read the book, but I never really got that. I feel like there's more interesting stuff going on there than the book. I guess the book was called The Fourth Turning, but I felt like there was... I always felt like there's something more there's something in, more interesting happening in the fourth tur- in the second turning than uh, than I got from the book. I, I got that sense that I, I yeah, I think you're right about that, right? And the second turning is an internal revolution, where the fourth turning is an external revolution. And so the internal revolution is a response to a repressed culture where uh, we're not allowed to have spiritual beliefs or music or all these like rich internal culture things that make humans special and unique from my perspective, what makes life worth living. Those type of things get repressed. Why? Well, that's always based on the tail end of a conflict. So 
during conflict, during the fourth turn, and you essentially get rid of all those nice to have things, right? You sacrifice and you go to war and you come home from war. We have this strong civic duty and we want to rebuild. We're tired of fighting. So it creates a culture post-conflict of just sterile life and put our heads down and let's just be happy with what we have and keep it simple. And again, the people grow up in that environment and they're like, this is not what life is all about. And so the pendulum swings super hard the opposite way and you get the civil rights movement and all those things we mentioned. Um, I agree. They're fascinating. All the religious movements throughout history were during that period. Um, yeah. Yeah. Not just the previous second turning, but like all, but uh, in all previous uh, what are they called? Um, awakenings. Uh, That's right. So it's very interesting. And also I feel like the, the awakening, you know, there are several awakenings happening at the same time. Like you had, um, you know, you had like an evangelical movement happening at the same time as like the kind of hippie drug culture, or maybe, you know, maybe a little bit after each other, but within like a decade or so, you know, so um, yeah, I, I find that kind of, kind of fascinating. I almost wish I could go back in time because we can't talk to someone who was around for the second great awakening or the third great awakening and kind of ask what it's like. Um, one of the things that I disagree with, with how on or not disagree, but I kind of disagree with the way he thinks about it. He's, he, he always puts the next fourth turning is like, Oh, there's going to be a new, new deal, or it's going to be like the 1930s where I'm like, well, wait a minute. 1930s weren't like the 1860s and the 1860s weren't like the 1780s. So why would this one be uh, similar to the last one? Uh, it's almost like it's almost like you have to get out of your your local maximum. Uh, society getting out of its <laughs> local maximum is uh, what the fourth turning is all about. Yeah, I think that's actually a really, really important point. Right. And historically, I, I would say the setup of this fourth turning is most similar to the thirties and forties, but the thirties and the forties are so entirely different than the civil war or the revolutionary war. And so, yeah, I think, I think you bring up a good point. Like how predictive could it be if we look at the last three and they're actually all quite different, but I I think the thing to think about here is not the specifics, the implementation, it's the mood. And I think you mentioned this in your previous pod and I think it's really powerful, which is war. Right. The difference between a war and a third turning versus in a fourth turning. Right. So the third turning is like the 20, 1920s or the 1990s. That's deregulation. It's partying, getting while the getting's good. Crime is rising. Economic inequality is rising. Um, but no, there's no immediate problems and nobody wants to fix anything because there's still booze in, at the party. Right. The, the, the booze hasn't run out yet. And so yeah. in that environment, a war is is not popular. Nobody wants to change again. And so the the Germans sunk the, was it the Lusitania? Lusitania? Yeah, they sunk that boat in the third turning and nobody cared. <laughs> okay. Well, bad, bad, but there's no demand for war. And then, okay, Pearl Harbor, right in the fourth turning, we go to total war the next day. Right. Yeah. Pearl Harbor is a bigger deal, but the mood was way different in that time. And I think that's a really important part to think about with with third and fourth turnings. It's just we're ready for major action. We're ready for sacrifice. We're ready to collectivize where the third turnings are still very individualistic. I mean, that's that's scary. That means things could get very dangerous. And, you know, I don't know what the best way to prepare is, but it is it it is quite uh, 
uh, it is quite alarming if, if that, if, if that's the case. Um, and you know, I almost, I think about that. I'm like, well, I hope we avoid something that is equally as bad as what we've experienced the last few times. Yeah. I, I think that's a really important point. People always ask, okay, well, what's the conflict? Have you done it yet? This, the cycle and to put context, I think the fourth turning would very clearly start around 2008. Um, that marks a major mood shift between uh, pre and post, right? The global financial crisis. Then you have Obama, hope and change, right? It, it's all of a sudden the politicians uh, in the third turning, they just deny all the problems. They suppress it and they just say, everything's fine. And then the fourth turning comes, the mood shifts, populism rises, people actually identify the problem. So then all the politicians are uh, just making the problem sound even worse and proposing themselves as the solution. So just look at slogans uh, pre and post 08 if you want a fun exercise there. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, that was the shift. What's the crisis? Right. I think there's a few things to keep an eye on. Um, I, I wrote this essay, a, a major essay on comparing uh, the fourth turning through a Bitcoin lens last year, uh, made its way around the Internet quite, quite far and wide. Um, but I initially thought that COVID was going to be our war. Right. It's this global thing. We got to work together. It kind of felt like a war. They're calling it the war on the virus, whatever. Um, but then what happened? Society fractured into a million pieces and we picked teams and it actually ended up um, separating us more. And so I think COVID is not the, the unifying force. Um, I don't know what it is, right? If you look forward, could it be some sort of a, a hot war with, let's say, China, who clearly wants to take their leadership role on the global stage? I don't think we're quite there yet. We're very tightly. It would be very scary. And I, I actually do not think also, we'll have a, a hot war because we're yeah. so economically linked. I think that would be tough to happen. I mean, and it would be a total disaster from for everybody's side. Everybody, but yeah. It could, it, it, I guess it could happen, though. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I can't promise it's not going to happen. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, right. I, I get this feeling there's this other shoe that's going to drop, but I have no idea where it's going to come from. Um, and I, I don't, I hope we can go quietly into the first turning, but it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. Um, yeah, I don't think so. I, I think we're still ramping up. I, I think we'll probably be done with the fourth turning around 2030. Yeah. And yeah. historically there's a climax period, let's say three to five years before the, the cycle's over. And then there's sort of this like rebuilding, reset the game board resolutionary period for a few years at the very end. And so by that timeline, you know, we had probably have three to five years um, before we would expect a, a, a climax. Right. right. What does that look like? It's really hard to say, but economic inequalities exploding. Governments are printing money like crazy. Their governments are seizing power. Um, it appears that the world has gone absolutely crazy. And so I think all of these are ripe conditions to uh, produce a very bad conflict. But again, we have all these nuclear bombs now. And I think, I hope at least, and I think this is true, that there's sort of a, a unanimous agreement that we're not going to use those on each other. And so if that's true, then it would be sort of a Cold War proxy war 2.0, where it would be more like an economic war, a uh, whose social credit system is better war, uh, Almost an thing, something like that. An information and like psychological war as well, which yes. is, is kind of going on on the internet right now. I mean, that's what that's what being on the internet feels like. 
Yeah, that's a very good point. And I, I honestly feel a that the major fulcrum of this fourth turning is individualism versus collectivism, where yes, we collectivize during this period, but it feels like we're about to go way too far on that side where like the like our response to the chaos is actually more dangerous than the chaos itself. And I, I as a freedom loving individualist myself, I, I, I fear for that future outcome. Um, I, I realize that I'm not in, in the majority here. I think it's actually popular to collectivize right now, especially with millennials, which I am among. Um, but, but I see the risk on the other side of that being very great. Um, and that risk is that we sort of uh, de-emphasize free markets. We de-emphasize individuality. We de-emphasize um, the things that made America uh, a strong country and a long-lasting country to begin with. And instead, we turn into more of an uh, autocratic, techno-autocratic society, more, more closely resembling to China. And there are some strong symptoms of that being expressed right now, one of which is the idea of a central bank digital currency. Okay, uh, to the layman, this is a cryptocurrency given to you by your government, and they use fancy buzzwords like blockchain. And so to the un untrained eye, it appears like that's a good thing, like, wow, our government's being innovative. But the reality is these, these central bank digital currencies are more like surveillance money. Um, it essentially means you have an app, that app is owned by the Federal Reserve, the central bank of the government in the US, and you have an account there, like a checking account. And the government can give you money. They can set your specific interest rate to whatever they want. So if you're a student, they can give you a high interest rate to encourage saving. If you're a boomer and you have too much money, they can give you a negative savings uh, inflation or interest rate to spur uh, economic spending. So it sounds good on paper, right? But that's also a lot of power consolidated in a small group's hand. So we're seeing people get deplatformed off Twitter for saying literal true facts but just are against the mainstream narrative, right? Those people are being eliminated from the internet. Well, the same thing can happen with your money. If they don't like your political speech, if they don't like who you hang out with, where you go, how you spend your time, they can turn your money off, right? And this is already, this is live today in China, right? If you do the wrong thing, you lose privileges. And it's essentially a move to use AI and very sophisticated technologies to manage a population uh, from with software instead of through uh, traditional means. Again, it sounds good on paper, but all I see is too big of a power, uh, too big of a tool for a institution that does not deserve uh, this much power um, because they demonstrate time and time again that the power is abused. And that's human nature. And so Bitcoin is actually an antidote to this techno state. Bitcoin is essentially a groundswell, an emergent monetary system that is run by the users. And that actually increases individual autonomy at the expense of the state. And this, this increase of freedom is actually required for innovation. And innovation is required for prosperity. Right. Yeah. So it's freedom, innovation, prosperity. And Bitcoin is the freedom, freedom enabling tool. And it's, you know, it satisfies my political bent, but it's also extremely practical. Well, yeah, you mentioned that, uh, you know, there's the, the one of the characterizations characterizations of the fourth turning is that there's a, a low amount of order and a high demand for order. And I think the, the concept of order is kind of fuzzy, like there could be. Um, like, okay, 
like there could be there's the good side of order where it's like okay i don't want to see uh you know riots all over the place or i don't want to see high crime or uh in the monetary system you could say well uh the the fiat system is is utter chaos just you know the printing money or you know like um uh, credit expansions at will, all that stuff is, is chaos. And so in that sense, like Bitcoin, you could see it as as order, even though it, it exists in a free market. But then again, it, it, from, from the average person, if, if you just feel like you want to uh, um, impose order, or not even just the average person, the average politician especially, you're going to get some very boneheaded attempts at imposing order. And, you know, we've seen that during the pandemic. Uh, we've seen that... Uh, well, we've seen that for a lot of things over the last few years. Yeah, that's a really, really important point. Um, all of these, we'll just say variables, um, you don't want too much and you don't want too little, right? And, and society senses the fact that if there's not enough or too much of something, all of a sudden there's a counter force that pushes it back towards the midline. And you're right, right? Not enough order was really bad for society. We can't get anything done. We're chaotic. Um, it's sloppy. We don't really build anything for the long term. Um, but if there's too much order, it's also a bad situation, right? You can think of like Nazi Germany as an, as an archetypal example of a society that's out of balance in the sense that it has too much order. Right. And uh, that's not good either for, for very obvious reasons. And so yeah. I think of this like you can say a pendulum or um, I think of it like actually like a rubber band where we're inside, think of a rubber band flat on a table. And if you stretch the rubber band on any one way, you'll pull eventually to a point and then it'll pull you back and you'll probably go shooting to the other side. And so there's all these tense forces and we actually need that. It's very, very healthy for us to do this. And it's also good from a, okay, we're in the fourth turning, uh, chaos is coming. Is there going to be a, a positive future on the other end of this? And historically, yeah. after this chaos period, uh, civic engagement's high. So we're all sort of like willing to work hard and work together. And that carries over into the first turning. And the fourth turning is kind of like a brush fire. It burns all the dead wood. And then we can sort of reinvigorate uh, society with new life, new institutions after we've cleared all the dead wood out. And then we build all these new institutions with new understanding, new needs, and theoretically those institutions will be good and, and better for most people. And they'll carry us another, let's say 80 to 90 years until we outgrill them once again. Um, but the key takeaway here is that economic equality, um, it actually rises in the first turning and the second turning. Okay, that's really important. And so right now we're at like peak inequality. That's uh, as bad as it's been. Um, however, after we reset the game board, theoretically, um, that should change again. And why? Well, it's you can kind of see riots everywhere. People are on edge. And I think a lot of that stems from the fact that the economics aren't working for most people. And so, you know, the, the people with a lot of money, and a lot of power, they're, they're sensitive to the fact that the little guy is getting screwed. Um, I don't think that they actually care about the average person, but they do care when the average person rises up and burns down cities. And so they do want to manage our response to the conflict, throw us a bone every now and then. Um, and so I, I do predict inequal, uh, inequality going down, but at what cost? I don't know. Um, it's clear that we need it, but I, I, I don't know. I'm cynical right now because I see our leaders making all these short-term decisions and most of them are seemingly well-intentioned, 
but the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So I, I take a firm stance that your intentions do matter, but your outcomes matter uh, an order of magnitude more. And so, you know, ignorance is not an excuse. We need to make good, robust solutions. And I, I think the way that we um, solve problems on a systemic society-wide level is very carefully, right? This is a complex adaptive system. You make one little change here and you see 10 outcomes that you were unpredictable over there. And so I, I see move slowly, make very, very careful decisions. And I, I think the primary leverage point here is incentives and people respond to incentives. And so how can we tweak those incentives ever so slightly to get society to, to trend in the direction we want? And again, I think Bitcoin is that incentive change. Um, it de-emphasizes the political class and it re-emphasizes the, the productive class. And I think where we're at now is like, Wall Street's too big a part of the economy. Central, central governments are too big of a power structure. And we actually want to decrease our financialization, decrease central planning, re-decentralize, empower the, the edges of our human network. Um, and I, I think Bitcoin is that careful incentive balance shift that will be really, really good for individuals. And not just in the U.S. is a global thing. The U.S. has the best monetary system. We need Bitcoin the least here. By far, it's not even close. And so if you look globally, there's 2 billion people who either live under authoritarianism or have no access to basic financial services. It's a lot of people. Um, yeah. And today, right now, they can grab a cell phone with internet access and have a central bank and a commercial bank in a Bitcoin app in their phone right now. And their governments are not providing those financial services. And so Bitcoin steps in to do that. And it is a shared project. Right. So millennials and young people, we want to work together. Well, Bitcoin is the most egalitarian shared public ledger in the history of time. And so if you want to contribute to the, the future of our species, this is a great way to do that. Yeah. OK, great. I, so I just want to uh, hit on two more points, two more questions than hit home. One is one we're going to project really far out, which is going to be uh, which is always tough. Uh, and then I'm going to come back to what we could do right now, and then we're going to wrap up. So, so the first question I have in response is, I feel like if we enter a first turning in 15 years, if we had a time traveler sitting with us today from just 15 years in the future, I think they'd be like, look, I don't even know where to start to explain to you guys <laughs> what life is like. I, I think like our culture and economy would be is going to be so different not to mention also our technology like have you thought about like this like where might we end up um in in 15 years time if this uh if this turning theory comes to pass as uh uh as um as expected yeah um first of all thinking to the future with any sort of confidence is extremely hard and everybody know. knows that uh, 15 years is nearly impossible i i have impossible. this rule I have this rule if somebody like doesn't know what they're doing or doesn't, you know, is working on something, but they don't want it. They want to hedge. They always say five to 10 years. Look for that. And I've done it myself. Like, look for that, um, you know, look, look for that keyword five to 10 years. It's always, it's very interesting when you hear it. So I'm, I'm talking about 15 years as a first, first turning. So that's, that's crazy. Yeah. And I, I think one underline before I try to unpack your question is that yeah. um, let's say, the previous fourth turning, right? It ended, let's say 1945. So let's just say 10 years. The difference between 1935 America and 1945 America, 10 years, astronomical. 
We're in the middle of the Great Depression. FDR's New Deal is trying to rebuild home. We haven't had the, the 37 mini recession. We haven't had Pearl Harbor yet. We haven't had the Bretton Woods system yet. So 10 years, massive things can change. And I predict a similar amount of uh, turmoil between now and then. Let's, let's not think about the climax because that could go many different ways. What does a new world look like? Um, I, I think one force that I'm, I'm hoping is true and I think is true, but I'm cautious because I want this to be true. You got to be skeptical of the ideas you want, you, you like. Um, right. But this idea is a uh, balkanization of, of governments. So instead of 300 states, we have 3,000 states. Right. And, and this idea, um, if you want to go deep here, there's a good book that lays out a similar thesis called The Sovereign Individual. It's actually written, I think it was published the same year as The Fourth Turning, which is interesting. They predicted Bitcoin. They predicted all these different things. But they're essentially looking at what are the macro changes that will come from the information age. And they look at all of the different ages, but we're, we're specifically talking about the information age. And one thing there is that, OK, information's global and ubiquitous. We know that. Well, okay, now money is a content type that moves on the internet. So if money can be owned by the individual instead of by the state, there's a little bit of a, a, a you need the state less, right? Now we all work remotely, internet's everywhere. And so our, our work is mobile, our capital is mobile. Um, so we can essentially move and live anywhere now, um, combined with like the digital nomad trends, combined with the inefficiencies of these mega governments, because we no longer need to have the biggest army. It's actually better to uh, focus on ideas. Ideas are primary, not things anymore. Ideas are worth more. And so all of these forces lead to the individual and smaller groups actually being able to outcompete the bigger states for the first time since the Industrial Revolution took hold. And so I, I foresee a 10xing in sovereigns, not in 15 years, probably more like 50 years, but I think that will be that will emerge during this next uh, cycle. Um, what else would I predict? Be really in 15 years, I would predict Bitcoin is worth more than $100 trillion um, <laughs> based on US well, price, based on current dollars, not right. a hyperinflation scenario. Yeah, um, so that would be a scenario where, where the, the purchasing power wouldn't be that high. It would that's be, right, that's like, right. In today's many, purchasing power. How many houses would it be able to buy is is uh, more than today, but you know, probably not a trillion houses because we won't have that many. No, no, no. Uh, market cap of a hundred trillion. So oh, market I think cap total. Okay, yeah. That's yeah, sorry. Did I say the Bitcoin price? Oh, okay. Yeah, I was a little uh -huh. bit confused there. Yeah, no. Okay, market caps. That's like a hundred times what it is today. That's right. Um, and so. Okay, I could see that. Yeah, and that's fifteen years is a long time. So it's 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 not like, okay, yeah, I get it. I feel very comfortable at a fifteen year time frame. I, yeah. I if I was aggressive, I'd probably say more like ten. Yeah, that's yeah. what I think is happening. Well, and people will say, "How do you get to that number?" That sounds like a lot. Uh, it is a lot, but I think the grand thesis here, and I think this is important to hammer home, because a lot of people think Bitcoin's gold 2.0, gold's around 10 trillion. So they say, okay, Bitcoin might 10x to 10 trillion, it'll be new gold. But the reality is Bitcoin as a store of value asset is the, the best, best way to store our wealth into the future that we've ever found or invented. And so what, what we're going to see is people uh, moving their wealth out of lesser stores of value and moving them into Bitcoin. What do I mean? Okay, if you look at real estate, people, the, the common adage is that real estate is how you grow your wealth. 
So people are using real estate as a store of value. If you go to Manhattan, between 10 and 15% of the buildings are completely empty. Why? Because people just buy them to park their money because theoretically it goes up in price over time. They preserve their purchasing power. Okay, similar with big tech stocks. Okay, you look at Amazon or, or whatever, Google, the, these companies, they have such outrageous uh, valuations that if you actually wanted the, the cash generating asset that these equities are, they would never be worth so much. Well, people are choosing to store their wealth there and it's worked out so far. Um, same with collectibles and gold and to a lesser extent bonds. And so the, the grand thesis of the bullish case for Bitcoin is that you actually, um, Bitcoin demonetizes real estate, demonetizes equities, um, and essentially shifts that value from one place over to Bitcoin. And that's actually a really good thing for our species. Uh, Bitcoin is the most efficient way to store value. It has the uh, lowest cost of carry, uh, fastest time to liquidity, right? If you want to sell your Manhattan real estate, it might take you a month and cost you 5%. Uh, you can sell your Bitcoin instantly anywhere in the world. Yeah. <laughs> you played that game, personally, sure. but I've, I've seen people go through that. It's... Uh... It's not yeah. So just to put a bow on it, yeah. demonetize the poor stores of value and re-monetize a better engineered store of value. Yeah. That's how you get to hundred trillion. Yeah. And that's okay, probably so, enough future. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. I, I want to get back to the present now because I, I think, as we've said, I think you'll agree um, if we use Strauss-Howe generational theory and we are in a fourth turning, this fourth turning, there's no uh, predetermination on how it could turn up. It could go very badly or it can go well, or it could be that the whole theory is kind of doesn't really apply these days, uh, is also possible. So in, in any case, you want to be, you want to look at like, what are people doing now to like build the future that they want? And it sounds like, you know, for you, you could talk about like what you could build uh, in terms of Bitcoin or the monetary system. I mean, this is the first time in history where an average person might actually get to get to do something about it. Uh, so, um, that's my question. Yeah, what can what can people start doing now? Uh, is it only in the monetary space? Maybe if there's another space you're interested in, you could you could talk about that. And also, like, and what are you doing now? Yeah, I think what you just brought up super super important. So let's just frame it like this. Okay, we're going through a turmoil, a period of turmoil. I don't think anyone would disagree with that, whether you're bought into this thesis or not. Things are crazy right now, and it would be prudent to prepare. Right. right. So if you just look at trends, just to underline this, like the idea of homesteading is 10x in the last five to 10 years, homeschooling as well. Uh, prepping is now like a major industry. And so society is starting to realize that there's something on the horizon and, and the people who worry first are already doing so. And so in my opinion, it's very, very prudent to pursue it this way. Um, I'll go through a couple things. One, like to summarize it, if, the only thing you yeah, take summarize. away is become anti-fragile. Okay, what does that mean? It means if chaos comes, you're prepared and you might actually benefit from the chaos. Okay, how does one do that? Um, one, you want to make sure that your downside risk is protected. What does that mean? If the worst case scenario happens, are you wiped out? Okay, so how, how do you minimize downside risk? You make sure that your income is not vulnerable, right? Can you be canceled from the internet and lose your job? And if you lose your job, do you lose your house? 
right? Don't let that happen. So I would try to live below your means. I would try to live under your expenses should equal one of the working, let's say two people are working in your family, try and get your expenses down to so that one person can work and you can still pay your mortgage and your bills. That's one thing. Um, I would uh, think about jurisdictional arbitrage. What happens if your location fails? Um, are you screwed or do you have a backup plan? Do you have a cabin in the woods in another state? Do you have a second passport? Um, how are you approaching jurisdictional stuff? Okay, what about community? Um, if we're going through chaos, no matter what, if it's the end of the state or some minor thing, you need community. You can't go through this alone. So who are your actual friends? Who, who actually has your back? Who do you want to raise your kids with? Who do you trust on a deep level? Uh, think about that. Essentially build your tribe. It's okay if it's online, um, but local is better. Um, I would I would approach food security a little bit differently. I don't know if we're going to have major widespread issues with food, but I would start I have, a garden. I, I would a put a freezer. Who, I have a friend <laughs> Sorry, who buys ahead. a lot of canned food and then he tells me, oh, you should do it too. Just uh, buy a few extra cans every time you're in the supermarket and you'll build one up. And then I just end up eating it. <laughs> so uh, maybe I could do better with that. Yeah, I mean, personally, I, I, I would say the best thing to do is get a chest freezer and have a relationship with a beef farmer, hmm. right? You can buy half a cow that'll serve a family of four for a year comfortably. And maybe you have a freezer in your basement. That, that's pretty easy, right? There's those baby steps here. You don't have to be a hardcore prepper. It's just like what's practical in your life and what are your biggest risks and try to patch those holes. Obviously, buy Bitcoin is the most important. Yeah. You can take that across borders. Yeah. It's a get out of jail free card. No one can take it from you. No one can cancel it. You know, it, it, your bank account can't be shut down. You can literally transport across. You can go across borders with your money in your head. Right. Um, and so these are very, very good defensive strategies. And that, that's how I would approach it. Be defensive. And I and 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 people are also free to to build stuff on top of Bitcoin or on top of any technology that they, they might want to see, particularly all the software engineers that listen to this program, you know, um, there's, um, there's a whole host of things that you could, you could build with this technology that, um, that, that, that might help move the needle, I think. Yeah, really important point. And you probably have a lot of builders just due to who you are yeah. and in your topics. And so for the builders out there, Bitcoin, Bitcoin's ready for you. Um, there is so, so, so much to do here. And I would think of Bitcoin as a new layer in the internet stack, right? You have your TCP IP and your HTTP, your SMTP, all these different internet protocols. Well, now we have LN BTC, Lightning Network and BTC. Um, so Bitcoin, the base layer, oh, uh, that's I've been like trying to hardcore... Get I've been trying to get a guest for the Lightning Network for a long time, by the way. If you have any suggestions after the show. Let oh, me yeah, yeah. I'll help you with okay. that for sure. Oh, awesome, awesome. Okay. Um, so just sorry, for the, the people who are curious, yeah. uh, the base layer of Bitcoin from an engineering standpoint is like nuclear grade code. It doesn't change very much. And that's by design. You don't want the rules of your monetary system to change. Um, however, on you can bolt on layers on top of Bitcoin, such as the Lightning Network, which have more exotic features and it's much easier to build. And so if you're a young person and you like uh, being a little bit further away from the machine, the Lightning Network's an exciting space. It's growing extremely fast. And honestly, the possibilities there are endless. People are building um, any type of financial app because it offers free, instant, global, borderless payments, unstoppable payments, like literally 
fractions of a penny to move money around instantly all over the world. Um, but then you can also send messages embedded in that money. So people are literally building social media platforms that cannot be shut down on top of Lightning Network. Um, you can think of like a one-click login for your global digital identity online can be run through the Lightning Network. And so think very, very big on Lightning Network. Uh, there's a lot of things that it, it's still very fresh um, and people want to fund these businesses. So I would say it's a really exciting place to, to get your feet wet. Very cool. Very cool. All right. I think it's, uh, it's a good time to wrap up. Uh, so I'll just end with, do you have any last thoughts on all of this and to wrap it up and also like, where can people find you online? What are you, what are you working on? What are you doing right now? Yeah, absolutely. So my parting words, um, you know, I, I spend a lot of time in, in Bitcoin community and on those podcasts. So I'm going to make this a more like beginner friendly or broader message, sure. which is that if you don't own any Bitcoin, uh, it's time, right? Get off zero. Um, it doesn't matter if you're 1% or 90% of your wealth in Bitcoin. You know, we could argue about what makes sense there, but 0% at this point is not responsible. And so what I recommend is to get started acquiring some. It doesn't mean you need to go all in. It just means start today or start this week. And I recommend just a simple dollar cost average plan. Like you buy 50 bucks a week or hundred bucks a month or whatever your number is that's comfortable to you, start buying and don't stop, don't sell and don't get stressed about it. Just spend a little time learning, buy a little bit of Bitcoin. And if you're wrong, okay, fine. You lost a little bit of money, but if you're right, you stand to uh, see a tremendous appreciation in your investment. And so it's an asymmetric bet in that sense. If you're wrong, you lose a little. If you're right, you win a lot. Um, that's what you want as an investor. Now, for me personally, I work for a Bitcoin company, swanbitcoin.com. Um, you can go there right now and get $10 worth of Bitcoin for free. If you go to swanbitcoin.com slash quitem, that's my last name, Q-U-I-T-T-E-M. Uh, just create a Swan account. We'll give you $10 in free Bitcoin, no purchase necessary. Obviously, I think you should purchase, but you know, you make that call for yourself. Um, I, I spent a lot of time on Twitter, um, trying out ideas, writing long Twitter threads. Um, very active there. B Quidum. I'm sure it'll be in the show notes. Yeah, Otherwise, all my writing lives on brandonquidum.com. And I wrote a very long essay about the fourth turning in Bitcoin yes. last year, as I personally was trying to make sense of all, all this transition. And I thought this made the most sense. And so if you like these ideas, you'll really like the essay. Um, there's also a Twitter thread and an audio version. So if you want the shorter versions, you can get those as well. Um, that's all for me. I really, really appreciate you having me on, Max. I thought your questions were great. And you know a lot about the thesis. So it's fun to, to wrestle with these ideas with someone yeah. who's, who's got a good handle. Absolutely. Absolutely. Brandon Quidham, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Max. That's the show. To support The Local Maximum, sign up for exclusive content and our online community at Maximum.Locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at LocalMaxRadio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to LocalMaxRadio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power.